think the simplest thing would be that the whole world just agreed to <laughs> reduce emissions and then everyone trusted everyone to get on with it. But, you know, that's probably not not realistic. So <laughs> That's never going to happen. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> right? I mean, that's just, that's just never going to happen, which is the reason they're in, in creating the CBAM process, because they feel like uh, countries like China and India and a number of others that have been absent of some of the um, world uh, carbon dioxide conferences, I'll call them, because there's been multiples of them, that uh, there are some countries that don't want to participate. So what else are you going to do? Welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I am your co-host, Alan Hall, and I'm here with the commander of carbon offsets, the doctor of bladeology, Dr. Rosemary Barnes. And on this jam-packed episode, we have a, a, a number of topics this week. Uh, we have carbon capture, courtesy of Rosemary, and also carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is some EU way of imposing tariffs for people they don't like. Uh, questions about mammals, sea mammals, and, and wind turbine noise, and there's some studies going on. There's actually been a lot of research about that, and where's the industry going? We'll talk to those issues. Can we build enough lithium batteries? I think the answer is no, but Rosemary is going to fill us in with the details. GE is building 3D printed concrete towers with our friends from Cobod. And also, are, is renewable energy a good use for cell phone towers that are in remote locations using vertical axis wind turbines? Another pain point for Rosemary. So let's get started. Hey, Rosemary. Uh, we have Hi. a. We <laughs> we have a, a group up in. Uh, Europe called Climeworks that is working to remove 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide from the air and a plant called the Orca plant, which is the largest uh, carbon dioxide removal plant in the world at the moment. Uh, stats on it is, uh, well, actually it's broken, actually. <laughs> the latest news I saw on the web was that the system was broken because it was it's up north and it got too cold. And the system froze, and so they're still trying to figure it out. But does carbon capture make sense? And do we actually have, is it going to really make any impactful difference on the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the air? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And it's really kind of a controversial thing, too. And my, it's where my opinion differs, I think, pretty starkly from most other um, you know, renewable energy professionals that I know and definitely differs from climate activists who are mostly very, very uh, scathing of, of um, yeah, uh, carbon capture and especially direct air capture because it uses so much energy to capture like the really low concentration carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, and I did look up some, some stats for that and do some quick calculations. So uh, in 2020, atmospheric carbon dioxide was 412.5 parts per million. So that's like 0.04%. So to get one ton of carbon dioxide out of the, the air, if you, you know, can capture it all, you need to move 2,500 tons of air. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of air moving around. And, uh, I mean, if you've ever plugged a, plugged a fan in, then you know that that, <laughs> that uses a lot of electricity just to move the air. And then, uh, you know, not to mention actually managing to um yeah grab those carbon dioxide molecules and and do something with it so 
It's definitely, I think in the past, especially in Australia, the way that carbon capture was sold to us, it was like in the form of clean coal and it was like, we can have carbon capture and then we don't need to do an energy transition because, you know, it's just like we're just going to put these, um, you know, plants everywhere and carry on business as usual. And I think um, some people in the, the fossil fuel industry and some government people do still seem to think that that's, that's what it is. It's like an either or, either you have renewables or you have um, carbon capture and storage. But the reality is that it, it can never scale um, to the point where you could do that. You could have CO2 removal instead of, you know, just stopping to emit CO2 emissions. And I mean, the main reason is just economics. So if you look at um, the Climeworks plant, which is the, the biggest and um, maybe one of the most advanced technologies that we have so far, it costs $1,200 per tonne of CO2 to remove. Um, and yeah, a bit cheaper. Apparently Bill Gates gets a 50% discount. He's, he's paying 600 per tonne for his bulk purchase. But that's way more than, you know, abatement from swapping, you know, closing down coal power plants and replacing it with renewables and batteries and, you know, changing over internal combustion engines for electric vehicles. It's just, you know, like a totally different level of costs involved. So you would never, you would never choose to just scrape it out of the atmosphere instead of, you know, removing, <laughs> removing the emissions in the first place. Well, is, is there a natural cycle that would happen here as we remove or we start pushing pushing less CO2 into the air. Is there any sort of feedback loop that we've looked at in terms of the Earth's cycles that as we decrease CO2 emissions that uh, the planet will start to reabsorb some of the CO2 that has been created and it reaches some sort of equilibrium? Because the hockey stick curve I still see floating around and we're on this catastrophic pathway to all life ending on the planet, but Yet here we are, ten years later after the ten-year predictions, and we still haven't reached the hockey hockey stick curve. What what are we missing here? And is carbon capture even part of a long-term answer, or is it really just one percent of a of a ninety-nine percent problem? Because we're we're talking about trying to move the carbon dioxide down from 004 percent of the atmosphere to 0.03 percent of the atmosphere am i wrong right about that roughly i actually haven't looked up what it, what we would like ideally like the atmosphere to be at what it used to be at in terms of co2 but yeah okay. we need to it, it's not it, it's not that we have you know um, multiplied the amount of co2 in the atmosphere by 10 times or something it's it's definitely um it seems like a small increase but it, unfortunately no. the effect on the climate is is large um, and I mean, I'm no, no climate sure. scientist, so I, I don't want to get into too much depth here, but, um, my understanding from what, uh, other actual climate scientists are saying is that they're, they're much more worried about positive feedback happening. So rather than that, the earth is going to shortly be able to, you know, absorb more CO2 than it previously could, people are worried about, you know, permafrost melting and, um, and yeah, mm -hmm. methane being emitted from those those areas and other types of things. And I do think that it's for that sort of thing that we are going to need carbon um, removal from the atmosphere. So that's where I see these places. And I think you mentioned, you know, like maybe 99% of the job is done through stopping to emit and 1% of the job is done through sucking out carbon from the atmosphere. And I 
it might not be one, it might yeah. be, you know, two, three, four percent, but I think that you're roughly right. And I think that that's going to be really important in, you know, 2040, 2050. And so whilst it currently doesn't make any sense to, to spend all this money and all this energy removing carbon from the atmosphere, I mean, so this largest plant in the world, it's 4,000 tonnes. It's equivalent to yearly emissions of 862 petrol cars or closing down 0.001 coal-fired power plants or installing 1.1 wind turbines. You know, like it's, it's, not, it's not a significant yeah. thing at all if you look at the, the actual carbon that's being removed. Um, and then the other thing is the energy usage. You know, you, you use a lot more energy. Um, so that's why they've located it in Iceland where they have already, a, you know, a really green, um, pretty much 100% renewable electricity grid. So it's not emitting more to use this mm. um, electricity there, but it's 3.9 watt hours per gram of CO2 removed. So it will need 5,600 megawatt hours of green energy to achieve its 4,000 ton CO2 removal target. Um, and yeah, I saw wow. a post on LinkedIn from Gianni um, Catalfamo who says that if the same energy was used to power electric cars, it would avoid CO2 emissions 2,000 to 5,000 times larger than, than what they're going to achieve. So for today, it doesn't make sense. But since we're going to need it in 2040, 2050, and it is a very challenging technology, I do think that we need to work on these technologies now. However, we need to be able to work mm. on them without like all this media buzz that goes with it that makes people think that we're doing this instead of removing <laughs> or yeah, reducing our emissions because it's not right. one or the other. It's yeah, like emissions reduction is the big 99% thing and then this is the 1% thing we need to work on for the next 30 years to make sure it's ready in time. Yeah, well if I think you raised sort of a, a really good engineering point here is everything needs to be put in perspective, right? And, and when we leave journalists to the task of putting things in perspective, we always lose track of where we're at because the, most journalists are not mathematicians, they're not scientists, and they're definitely rarely engineers. So we, we lose the focus of what, where the emphasis should be, and the emphasis should be on emitting less carbon dioxide and not trying to recapture it. Recapturing is probably part of it. And in that effort to reduce the amount of carbon that's uh, carbon dioxide that's emitted into the air, uh, the EU is putting out a bunch of new rules, like the EU likes to do, about carbon emissions. Now, it, it, they have a new, uh, a new program called the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. Now, first off, that name really is bad, okay? It doesn't translate no, well to English. No, but you've got to use the acronyms. It, it means something else in French. CBAM. <laughs> You've got, to, you've got to call it CBAM. <laughs> then it sounds catchy. <laughs> well, it does. It has a nice ring to it, right? So they're, they're, plan they're planning on some market changes in 2023 uh, to look at carbon emissions and impose tariffs on products that create carbon dioxide, such as cement, I guess coal-fired plants, uh, uh, any kind of product that uh, is generating a lot of CO2 as it is created, when it's imported into the EU, they're going to impose a tax on it because of all the CO2 emissions they couldn't otherwise tax. So let's just use, use a case in point. Uh, so if there was a, a factory in South Africa that was making cement and that cement was, was transported up to France, that South African 
uh, cement would be taxed based on what the theoretical CO2 emissions were to create that cement. Now, <laughs> I think this is a little nebulous on how this is going to be done because how do you know how much CO2 was emitted when they created that, that cement product? You really wouldn't. Maybe renewables are highly in use in South Africa because I know there's a, a number of wind turbines down there. Maybe they're using clean energy to create the cement. Maybe they weren't. Who knows? But it's, 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 a, it's a very confusing, vague process. And I, I'm, as an American, I'm always struggle. If, if there's confusion, there's a lot of uh, bureaucracy in the way that you, doesn't make a lot of logical sense. That means there's a lot of places for nefarious activities to happen. There's a lot of ways mm -hmm. that uh, politicians and bureaucrats to, work, to kind of weasel their way in there and create these uh, uneconomic conditions. It seems like this is right for it. Now, uh, this, whole, this whole process is based on the price of carbon dioxide, right? Uh, Rosemary, do you, do you know what, the, what carbon dioxide prices are right now uh, in different places of the yeah, world? Yeah, so that was roughly. That was one of the interesting things or reason why I wanted to talk about carbon prices today, because they're really high in Europe at the moment. They've just um, closed the week at. Um, nearly 89 euros per ton, which is about 95 US dollars. So we can compare that back to Climeworks $1,200, and you can see, you know, you know, we, there's a, a huge, huge mismatch there. But they are, um, I sure. think that's the highest that they've ever been by by quite a way. And it does start to make some um, technologies like regular carbon capture and storage, where you're, you know, taking the concentrated CO2 out of flue gases from, um, you know. A, a power plant of some sort, right? It's in theory not that much more than a hundred dollars a ton. Um, so we are kind of getting <clears throat> getting close um, to that. But the the European scheme it doesn't include everything in it, and as far as I'm aware, it doesn't currently include cement and other um, you know industrial products. And one of the reasons for that is because if you tax that in, um, or if you, you know, if a European cement plant had to pay for its carbon emissions, um, or maybe a better example is like aluminium, because that's a bit more transportable than cement. If that had to pay for its emissions, sure. what's to stop a country like Australia, which has, you know, not really strong regulation on carbon emissions, what's to stop us then selling to Europe for a lot cheaper than the Europeans can compete with because they're paying the carbon price and we're not paying it. So the CBAM right. is supposed to, supposed to take care of that. Um, like you said, it does <laughs> open up definitely uh, several cans of, of worms and um, it's, it is quite challenging. I think the simplest thing would be that the whole world just agreed to <laughs> reduce emissions and then everyone trusted everyone to get on with it. But you know, that's probably not, not realistic. So <laughs> that's never going to happen. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> right. I mean, that's just, that's just never going to happen, which is the reason they're in, in creating the CBAM process because they feel like uh, countries like China and India and a number of others that have been absent of some of the um, world uh, carbon dioxide conferences, I'll call them, because there's been multiples of them, that uh, there are some countries that don't want to participate so what else are you going to do? They're going to basically impose fines on them. But how do, I just don't understand how this process is supposed to work. And I still don't understand that, that how you apply a price to carbon dioxide. Because as we can see already, the pricing in Europe and the pricing in other countries, they have carbon pricing or marketplaces mm -hmm. is wildly different. It's like saying yeah. the price of gold would be different in America versus South Africa. 
they should be the same, right? The value of that in dollars or reals or whatever the currency would be, would be identical worldwide. And yet we don't have a carbon tax or a carbon price that's stabilized because it's sort of mystical, right? It's essentially a tax. <laughs> they can make the tax go up and down as they please, right? There is, there is no marketplace for carbon dioxide. There is. Right? There, mean, there, there, there is. And um, I mean, in Australia, we don't have a tax. We, we had a, briefly had a carbon tax for a while or an emissions trading scheme, um, and it was removed. And so we still have a price on carbon in Australia because we have you know, some voluntary um, offsets um, trading um, systems, and then the government is also buying offsets from companies to, you know, give some semblance of a climate policy and stuff like that. So okay. we, we do have a price on carbon in Australia, even in the absence of a, of a tax. But because, uh, I mean, I'm not an economist, maybe we should get, you know, a, a financial analyst or um, somebody who can, you know, really talk through this in depth on the, on the show. Yeah. But my understanding is that you know like the at the start of your decarbonization journey you've got heaps of low hanging fruit really easy really cheap stuff that you can do like you know like energy efficiency projects or not cutting down some trees that you were previously thinking about cutting down all that's you know pretty yeah. pretty cheap um and maybe that's where australia is now where basically all our emissions reductions come from um not cutting down trees that we say we would have otherwise um whereas in europe you know, they're a lot further along. They already cut down all their forests hundreds of years ago, so they, they don't have that option right. available to them. Um, and they're doing a lot more expensive things now to, to get carbon. Also, in Europe, it's a proper scheme where they are ratcheting down the amount of carbon, um, carbon dioxide available to trade every, every year. So um, theirs is actually designed to reduce emissions in a way that, um, yeah, that some of the other systems aren't. But I think, uh, you know, eventually Australia's original emissions um, reduction, emissions trading scheme, it was eventually planned to be tied to, uh, you know, other markets when you, you know, when you do allow cross-border trading. And I think that that would be like the mature place that you would aim to end up because, I mean, the planet doesn't care if Europe is down to, you know, 10% of its emissions while Australia is only at, at 90. It would be better right. to spend, spend your money reducing Australia's emissions all the way down um, rather than really expensive small gains in Europe. You want the, the big cheap gains in Australia or, you know, it's a lot in um, developing countries, a, a lot of really it, easy wins there that will have the same well, effect on the um, atmosphere. Yeah, is, isn't this the same discussion we were having about carbon capture that if you're going after the 1%, you sort of miss the 99? In, in, in this particular scheme, it seems like we're aiming at the 1% here and, not, and sort of missing the big picture. There is no market for taxation. There just isn't. What I, do, what I do think is a real effect of this CBAM, um, it, gives, uh, it, it will allow Europe to include a lot more um, industries in their carbon price, which means there will be a reason right. why people would bother to change their, you know, their steel manufacturing plant. They, they would bother to change it over to hydrogen or um, sure. or, or something to be, um, it would to be more give like people a reason to make you know co2 neutral or reduce co2 cement because currently i think I, I saw someone estimate that if you put just europe's existing carbon price on cement it would make the price go up 50 percent or something so but why you know, would like you do that <laughs> why why would you because, do that artificially because i mean because either you, you make energy 
make the energy prices lower, right? The, the problem we're having in a lot of places is that the energy prices are too low. That, that's a good reason to use electricity versus uh, petroleum products or whatever, coal or whatever else, is that the price of electricity gets so low that it doesn't really make any sense to use other, to ship oil from the Middle East to Pennsylvania to make cement. That doesn't make any sense anymore. Or to dig coal out of Kentucky to bring it up to Pennsylvania to make cement. It, it would make a lot more sense to do it with electricity. If the, if, the, if the marketplace for electricity gets driven down, which clearly is, why would you not continue to drive it down and just naturally everybody will switch over anyway? Yeah, no, I agree with saying? you that um, when okay. it comes to renewable electricity, um, that's true. And that's why you see like Australia has been installing more renewables or, you know, proportion of renewable electricity in the grid is rising faster right. than nearly other, any other country at the moment. And we have very close to zero um, policy reason for that to be happening. However, cement emissions don't come from electricity usage, you know, it's, uh, and same with steel. It's, um, there's plenty of industries that aren't just, um, you know, more cheaply served by zero emissions technologies. Okay. And in those cases, if sure. you want to capture those, and I mean, I think cement and steel each make up, you know, something around 7 8% of global emissions, you know, each. Right. Um, not to yeah. mention, you know, aviation. I don't think that you would <laughs> you would Easy. think that electric aviation is just cheaper than um, using, you know, aviation fuel. It, there's, and, I mean, that's I, it annoys me actually people talk so much about aviation. It's less than 2% of our emissions. But, you know, there are plenty, plenty of, um, you know, emissions that come from things that can't be sold by electri um, electrification. Agriculture would be another one, and yeah, a lot of um, a lot of transport is not easily electrified. Um, yeah, if you look at right, you know, heavy transport and, and shipping and, and aviation, at least, yeah, electric right. cars are easy. Uh, I, it's just it's just two different philosophies here, and I I think you know we're going to find out which is more successful. But if if you don't have everybody playing on the same playing field, and you will not ever have that, then you have to figure out another way to make things happen. And I think the one of the easiest ways to make things happen is to lower the price of energy via renewables and everybody will switch naturally. It'll be the way to go. Yeah. And there, there's also social pressure to do it too. So I, mean, I don't need, if you know, I don't think you need to set up a really complex system run by the EU to, to do some of these things. I think a lot of it's going to occur naturally as, as it has over the last 10 years in the United States. Yeah, but we won't get all the way there. We'll get about two thirds or, or maybe 70% of the way there from the things that the market can sort out. And, and I mean, that's huge. And um, we definitely should be doing more to, you know, speed that up. And I think that, you know, the bulk of, of emissions reduction is electrification. And the, the fastest yep. way to speed that up is through making sure that your, you know, your market is set up right, because um, these clean technologies just are better. And if you, you know, um, change the, at the moment, you know, the playing field is really skewed in favor of the uh, incumbents, fossil fuels, if you, you know, get rid of some of those historical kind of um, regulations and market mechanisms, then, you know, we could go really fast on that and make a bigger change um, faster, yes. which the atmosphere needs. Um, but I do still think that for that remaining, you know, it's 20, 30-ish percent, um, it'll need something yeah. more. And there we do, like, what's the reason why anyone would bother to start looking into alternatives to cement that can be lower emissions? Because you, you'll, you'll never get rid of all the emissions from cement, from um, no. fertilizer, 
without right. you know some like really different thinking um and this this is one way to do that i mean what's the other option that governments just pay people to do research uh, i don't see that working out so well on its own no usually. no 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 i th- i think it's been shown over the last 20 to 30 years that bringing people countries out of abject poverty has a lot to do with reducing pollution of all sorts not just co2 and the faster we can get to a, a more stabilized world economy where we don't have uh, major countries and billions of people in living in some sort of poverty conditions, you're going to see the, the planet clean up much faster than any other way of going about it. And if you, mm-hmm. want to tax, if you want to tax those countries into oblivion, which you can clearly do if you choose to, you're going to slow down progress. And ultimately, well, ultimately it's about the speed of progress. <laughs> I don't oh, think it's going to sure. tax them into oblivion. It's just for a few, a few products you know, that um, are carbon intensive that are, you know, going into into Europe. So no, I, I think I think India. Let's just use India as a case in point because India is a country that is evolving very quickly, and uh, they are headed towards a renewable future. At least that's what it seems like right now. And if, if that's the case, we should encourage that, right? We shouldn't slow that down. And it may be rough in the, in the middle years as you're trying to accomplish that. But if, the, if, if they're heading in, in the right direction, you should accelerate that. And if it brings people out of poverty and it causes less pollution overall, that's a winner. I think that's a, that's a way better solution than trying to, to well, we're do, trying to do it to China too, right? So we're trying to, China, a bunch of other countries, Vietnam, you know, the United States has a lot of enemies, obviously. So one of the things we try to do is you try to sort of tax them into oblivion or don't trade with them. That doesn't necessarily help the, the world. And we've, we're, we're starting to reevaluate a lot of those things, at least in the States, and, and take a look at, hey, if countries come out of poverty, is it a better situation for the world? Historically, it has been. And so we should, <laughs> we should think about that when we create these taxation policies. And sometimes I think the EU... Uh, looks inward instead of outward. That if if the world's going to change, it's going to happen because of the EU. That's that's probably true on some level, but the EU is not a huge landmass, and it's not creating a, you know as much pollution as some other parts of the world. I'd rather see the other parts of the world slow it down in terms of pollution and raise up their economy and electrify themselves. That's where I think the long term will go, and we'll get to a better, faster solution than things that are being proposed right now. You know, it, 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 it's, it needs to be debated. And I'm not sure there's a lot of debate going on right now. I think there's a lot of obstinance on everybody's part, which uh, is not healthy. That, that, that's what I see from my little perch in America is that I, I would like to see things go better in the world. And we just are not quite there yet. And sometimes we miss the gains. We miss all the good things that have happened. We, we really have missed the good things that are happen, has happened recently and is happening, are happening right now. And we should use them to our advantage. That's me. So let's, let's take a quick break here because after the break, we're going to talk about <laughs> sort of whale dung, acoustic noise, and the effect that uh, wind turbines out in the ocean may have on sea mounts. We'll be right back. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground. 
but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. All right, welcome back uh, to the Uptime Podcast. We have a, a really interesting segment talking about noise on the seafloor and what its effect on sea mammals. And Vineyard Wind, which is a wind turbine farm that's going to go off the coast of Massachusetts here in the next uh, year or two. Uh, and Vineyard Wind is a joint venture between Avant Grid and um, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. So they're working with the University of New Hampshire to deploy a passive acoustic monitoring device to record ambient sounds and marine mammal species vocalizations in their uh, vineyard wind lease area. Uh, so what they're planning on doing is they're going to put a monitoring device in the water 30 days before construction starts, and then they're going to monitor what's happening with, <laughs> I guess, the, the, the whales and the dolphins and whatever else is running around over there. Uh, they're going to listen for three years after to see uh, how the sea mammals are faring and also what kind of noise is coming out uh, of, the, of the wind farm. Obviously, when they're, when they're driving in the pilings, that's going to make a decent amount of noise. Uh, and they're concerned about that, and, and that it may be causing stress into the local sea life. And this, this whole uh, concern about sea life and loud noises in the seafloor is, is I, I thought was validated, actually. I, I thought there was been a lot of, of academic data to, to say, hey, noises above a certain level make every, all the sea life go crazy and they don't like it. Uh, and I saw, and Rosemary, you may have saw this too. There was a, a LinkedIn post recently showing the path of a whale in a bay with shipping corridors where the whale appeared to be uh, avoiding the shipping corridors, like bouncing back and forth like a game of Pong. That's what I kind of look like. But this whale is moving around. I thought, oh, oh, okay. Maybe there is a problem with the whales and the, and the shipping corridors, and there must be a problem with, with wind with, when you start driving those pilings in. So at least uh, there's, somebody's going to start monitoring it. And Rosemary, does it make sense that we should start monitoring the noise off of offshore wind turbines? Because we're just really going to start massively deploying them worldwide. We just don't know a lot what's going to happen, do we? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is good to monitor, and it's interesting that you raise shipping, and I, I know you want to talk about that more later, but I think all the evidence shows that we're already disturbing marine mammals a lot with our activities in the ocean, and um, we haven't understood that very well um, so far. So I think it's definitely important to monitor because then you know you'll get ways to minimize the right. impacts, but... I don't like to see people, you know, only worry about an issue when it relates to renewables. You know, this is um, the noise in the oceans is is an issue, and it shouldn't only be um, when it applies to wind turbines that um, that we care about it. So, yeah, right. I'm in, in favor of the of the monitoring, but um, it it shouldn't be a reason to you know halt, halt all wind turbine installations, but keep on doing anything else noisy that you feel like in the ocean. I, I wouldn't like to see that outcome. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. So I, 
I think you and I are on the same page in terms of if it's too noisy, that's not healthy to any of the sea creatures. So let's let's keep an eyeball on it. So I started to do a little bit of digging just to, to see what research had been done. And there was an interesting study done on 9-11 in, in 2001, where shipping essentially stopped. All, most, <laughs> most everything stopped on 9-11, at least in the United States, where uh, some researchers up in Canada were monitoring some, some whales. And at the Bay of Fundy, which is a place I haven't been to, sounds, sounds beautiful, though. Uh, and they were collecting uh, whale dung. Before 9-11, during 9-11, and after 9-11. And I, I guess good. whales emit, well, yeah, I mean, some, somebody's <laughs> got to do it, right? Someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they were collecting whale feces, and I, 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 it sounds like uh, whales, when they're stressed, emit hormones, which then are expelled in their feces, and researchers can study that so they can kind of tell when whales are uh, stressed. So pre-9-11, Whales are stressed, 9-11 happens, uh, everything quiets down, shipping kind of stops for the most part in the United States for at least a couple of days, and the whales seem to be happier, have less of this hormone in their, in their, uh, in their tongue. So in, in that case, they thought, well, okay, there must be a correlation between noise and stress. And I, I, it's probably a good correlation, it's a, at least it's, it has something to do with it. So I decided to dig a little bit deeper, and there was a meta-study done back in 2019 on the effects of ship noise on marine mammals. So they're, they're looking at multiple, multiple studies, and what the literature shows is that they don't really know all that much. Uh, they, there's been a lot of studies, and there's been a lot of interest in it, but they haven't correlated uh, specific noise levels with specific kinds of stress. And because there's such a wide variety, variety of, of sea life that, that maybe some mammals are, are, are more impacted than others. There's just a lot of data, but it's, none of it seems to sync up, uh, which I thought was interesting because I, I, there is a big, big amount of effort being placed on renewables when they get deployed into the ocean. And Rosemary, what are, what are the kind of things have you seen where they're driving pilings and where they're trying to quiet that down? Have you, have you seen some of the tech around that? No, I haven't. I haven't seen that. I've been paying quite a lot of attention to the um, environmental impact assessments that they're doing, um, especially the ones yep. that they're doing in Australia at the moment, because we, um, you know, the first developers or wannabe developers of offshore wind farms in Australia have to kind of, you know, guide the whole regulatory framework to, you know, come into existence. Sure. So it's interesting to see what, you know, they don't have any regulations they have to follow. They're kind of, you know, doing, doing some impact assessments and then telling the, the government what, they, what regulations they should make. Um, or I guess that that's, you know, their, their goal. And I know that they're doing a lot of stuff, um, seeing what, what kinds of animals are in the area, what their normal behavior is, what kind of birds mm -hmm. are flying around, um, all that sort of thing. Um, sure. And I think that it's a really good consequence of of renewables that you can actually have this you know positive impact on um science related to these uh these animals i know someone told me once someone at ge told me that most of the funding for bat research in the u.s actually comes from the wind industry because wind turbines yeah. were having you know there, there were problems with um certain bats 
um, being killed by certain wind turbines. And so sure. they put a bunch of money into research to understand the bats better. And, um, you know, and that would allow you to make a, you know, changes to your technology that would um, protect them. Um, but as a consequence, we, we know more about bats now. And, you know, there's more opportunities for bat, bat researchers, which I'm sure those scientists are happy about. And I guess we'll see the same yeah. thing here. It's crazy that we really don't know what, uh, you know, what, what makes a whale happy or, or unhappy. Um, and we'll we'll learn more about right. that, which is a good thing in in itself, unrelated to the wind energy. And I'm sure the same thing will happen with um, marine, well, mammals and other marine wildlife, as has happened with birds and bats. You know, we'll find technologies that can minimize the um, impact on these animals without, you know, forcing us to just you know abandon wind energy altogether. Because yeah, obviously other other forms of energy generation also have big impacts on the environment, not least uh, climate change. <laughs> so I I've seen a couple of things about uh, the amount of noise that they're allowed to emit. I think it was in Denmark actually, where they were talking about like 168 decibels underwater of trying to limit the the noise to that, which 168 decibels is fairly loud right loud. Yeah, that's, that's very loud. beyond yeah. jet, jet engine loud yeah that's really <laughs> loud so they had i've seen two devices and i i haven't seen a lot of detail on either one of them but you hear the 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 little bubble curtain right that's the what i've read a lot about is they got this curtain of bubbles which act as a, as a absorber of noise which, which i guess is kind of cool right I, makes sense yeah and the the yeah, one I actually saw a little YouTube YouTube video on was a they described as as rings of upside down coffee cups in a tiered structure like a layered cake sort of thing. So it's like these <laughs> rings of upside down coffee cups, which was actually in, being used. Yeah, I I have to pass it along to you. So they're dropping yeah. this these rings down into the ocean around these pilings they're driving because it acted like a muffler. Uh, which if you ever look at a car, it's sort of the way up. A car muffler works. It sort of runs it through a bunch of baffles, and so that's how they were reducing the noise in in the water. I thought, wow, that, okay, so there is actually some really decent science going into reducing noise into the ocean, which is a lot better than you can say for like the shipping industry at the moment. That mm -hmm. that the renewable industry is really looking at it, which is hey, that's great, right? We we, sh we should be encouraging that, but I I think we should try to follow up on some of the technology there because, as as you said. There's not a lot of regulations about it, particularly in the states or in Australia, but there will be. And yeah. well, they don't know what they should be regulating. Sort of what the criteria yeah. is. Yeah, and the yes, science, that's what exactly. you need to tell you. <laughs> you know, like you can't just um, <laughs> n never do anything in case it causes a harmful impact on something. You have to, you know, proceed cautiously, but still proceed, you know, otherwise we're just we're just stuck with all our existing problems that will never get any better. So no, I think it's good. I, and I am seeing a lot of research now. Um, and I think that that's, that that's good, good place to be. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So we're going to take a short break here, but when we come back, Rosemary is going to tell us about the lithium ion battery gigafactories. And are we building enough to keep up with the pace of new battery tech? Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not actually, is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. All right, welcome back. Uh, Rosemary is going to give us a 
brief discussion about lithium-ion batteries. Rosemary, the table is yours. Okay, so I saw an article that was um, predicting or projecting, you know, what all of the, the effect of all of these battery gigafactory announcements that we've seen, you know, what's that going to add up? And so when you add up all of the gigafactory uh, announcements, then you end up with a pipeline of um, production six terawatt hours annually by 2030. Um, and at six terawatt hours, that would mean that the world could make about 109 million EVs each year um, with, you know, obviously the batteries for the EVs. And currently we're at, um, well, the current record uh, for 2021 was 6.6 million. So that is a big expansion in, you know, the less than a decade, but it's probably not as many as um, would naturally happen if we had no no constraint over the um, yeah the supply of batteries. Um, and just for reference, uh, Elon Musk says we need um, not a hundred and um, sorry we don't need six terawatt hours. We need three hundred terawatt hours to be able to totally transition the whole world's electricity and um, heating to renewables. And I mean, this is a point that's really, I think you see a lot of disagreement amongst many smart people, um, interested people. I personally think that we're going to need less storage than that overall for a variety of reasons I won't go into now. Or we would never, never get through the rest of this podcast. But I think that we're going to, we're going to need less storage. And I think that it's not, we're not going to use as much lithium iron as um, a lot of people think storage equals lithium iron batteries. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more pumped hydro, especially, and probably maybe also flow batteries might, um, you know, play a significant role. And to a certain extent, that depends on, right. um, you know, how many lithium ion batteries can we make? Because the reason why I think people think that, you know, lithium ion batteries are going to dominate is because if you, you know, continue current trends for, you know, um, the increased demand for lithium ion batteries and the reduced cost. You continue those trends through just a few years very quickly it <laughs> becomes impossible to uh, use any other technology because they're just you know more more expensive um, but we currently don't have all of the minerals in place that you would need to you know be, uh, allow those price reduction and demand increases to continue the way that they have been so I think that there's a lot of debate right. currently about how the future is going to look for lithium-ion batteries, and it's I think it's way up in the air. But do, doesn't the doesn't the outlook for lithium-ion batteries really depend upon that 300 terawatt hour number? That, that that's the critical number. Whatever that number is, we can have an argument if it's 301 or 299 terawatt hours. It doesn't really change the fact you're going to need a lot more lithium. Now, if if Rosemary, if you're saying it's only 100 terawatt hours, and who am I going to believe, Rosemary? or Elon, I'm not sure because I can't really weigh it, but it, it, it does make a big difference on, on what happens to the industries, right? 300 terawatt hours and 100 terawatt hours. There's a lot of terawatt hours in between those two. Someone's got to kind of get on the back of the envelope and start figuring that out, right? Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of back of the envelope level calculations done and um, not, I mean, you can, you can, you can get better depth, better accuracy um, than back of the envelope, but the assumptions are so wild that I don't think you actually get any closer to a good answer. Um, but it's, oh, wow. and I, I don't see actually that it's that number that's the, the driver. What I see is it's the technology and the economics that's going to drive what that number is um, because there's plenty of other ways that you can solve the problem. I mean, the simplest 
why conceptually to solve the you know the uh, electrification of the electricity grid is that you just have heaps of wind and heaps of solar panels and enough batteries to smooth all that out right. so that we carry on exactly like we have before with um, fossil fuels. You've still got um, energy on demand when you, whenever you want to you know, turn on the electricity tap. That's, that's one way to do it. Very right. uh, simple to describe. But I, I think if we end up not being able to produce the you know, vast amount of batteries that we would need to make that happen, then people are going to get a bit more creative. Um, so, you know, in the past, we adapted the electricity system to suit the generators that we had. So, you know, you have a coal power plant or a nuclear power plant, you can't really ramp it down at night. Um, so, or, or you can't turn it off completely. So we had um, all sure. this electricity generation at nighttime when no one wanted to use it. So you encourage people to use it by having off-peak um, power and people started having off-peak water heaters and, you know, and stuff like that. Um, we'll do similar things, but to reflect the new, <laughs> the new technologies and their, um, you know, characteristics. So I think we're going to see a lot um, more flexible demand um, than we have in the past because it's going to, you know, it's going to be a lot cheaper to do it that way. And then, you know, in terms of the actual, like, what do we use for the storage that we do need? Um, if lithium-ion batteries continue to just drop in price like they, that they currently are or they were up until this year, then, yeah, you would see almost nothing else except for the really long um, duration storage. Yep. Um, but if the prices go up, um, for a while because of, you know, like supply chain constraints, then you'll see other technologies come in. So pumped hydro is the most obvious to me because it can do that longer um, duration storage um, and it's quite, yeah, it's, it's very flexible sure. and we already know the technology. But there's also other kinds of batteries, so not just flow batteries, but also there's other battery chemistries that don't, you know, don't use all of the same minerals that might, you know, become constrained, including you don't need um, lithium at all. You can... Yeah, there's uh, like sodium ion batteries or, you know, other technologies that aren't mature or cost competitive yet. But, you know, if the price of lithium ion batteries goes up and people just can't get them, I think that you'll see people quickly maturing these other technologies so that they can sell something. I, I, I think lithium batteries are here to stay for the long term. And in that the, the chemistry is going to get simpler and simpler. They're going to re remove the hard to... Uh, find or hard to refine metals out of the batteries and replace them with something that's a little more generic. That's the whole point. And I, 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 as we have watched over the last 10 years, lithium has really, really made an impact because of the cars, the EV cars, that mm -hmm. any new technology is going to have a gigantic hurdle to jump. It'd be like trying to jump over a lead acid battery in 1970. It's just not going to happen. It's just so much infrastructure around it. It's impossible, almost impossible to do. But it's going to take someone like a Musk to basically build a factory out in the desert to overcome that. And I, I just, I just don't see that happening uh, at the moment. Now, uh, I'm going to transition here to things that GE is doing because I think this sort of ties in and in terms of different philosophies. GE is looking at 3D printing concrete tower bases, which is. Uh, totally different than anybody in the OEM space is doing. Why, Rosemary? Why is this a big deal right now? Why would you want to print a tower base? But the big deal now, it's been a big deal for a while. I actually 
tried pretty hard to get a job with that group in um, GE when I was uh, getting a little bit sick of uh, de-icing and uh, I saw that, you know, this, the additive manufacturing group was doing really interesting yep. things. Um, yeah, I was unsuccessful in, in pulling that off, but I, I have kept tabs on what they're doing. I, they've got all sorts of additive manufacturing stuff um, going on. That's really cool. And yeah, one of them is related yep. to, to towers and printing them from, from concrete. Um, and I mean, this is an important problem because, you know, everyone wants taller wind turbine towers, you know, the wind speeds get higher as you get, um, uh, further away from the ground. So the taller your tower, the better resource that you can get at, but they're constrained because, um, you know, to make a, a really tall tower, then you're going to want to increase the diameter of the tower so that it's stiff enough. If you, um, right. need to keep the diameter the same so that you can, for example, you know, transport these field tubes on normal roads, you know, normal trucks, then you're going to have to make them really thick if you want to make them stiff enough. Um, it's a, and you, so you end up using just way more steel. And so the economics um, don't work out. And that's why we have sort of seen towers um, sort of level off. They're, they're not, you know, getting way higher anymore like they were, you know, 10 years ago. Right. So people are looking for ways to get around this. Um, and there's a few different ideas, uh, but one of them is that you could print the bottom part of the tower. You could print it wider. Um, and then, yeah, you don't need to transport this really large diameter um, tube yeah. to site. You make it on site. Um, right. So, yeah, it's, it's got potential to have, have a lot of impact. So they're just talking about making the bases at the moment, right? And, and uh, Kobod has been on podcast so we had henrik lund nielsen on to talk about technology gosh it's probably two years ago almost now it's been it's been a long time and he he got us in early to explain what the technology was and uh we actually learned a lot behind the scenes of of how the technology works and, and what they can do with it i i think where they're headed is the cost of steel is going to go up so much that as if you can replace steel with concrete and you're not moving these massive pieces across the country it's going to be less expensive. And, and GE is looking for ways to make wind less expensive or to lower their costs in particular. This is one way to do, it, to do it if they can go higher with the tower. And if they can, I, I, my guess is that they could go at about 30 feet right now, what was about roughly t a little under 10 meters. So if they can go 10 meters. That's, that's a good bit. If they can get to 30, 40 meters, something like that, is it possible? Maybe it is. And if anybody can do it, GE and Cobot are going to be the two groups to, to pull that one off. So I think it's interesting technology to watch. Uh, it's cool. It's really cool. So yeah, last on our okay. docket today, yeah, last on our docket today, Rosemary, vertical axis wind turbines, cell phones, and solar panels. So a group up in Michigan called, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, obviously, Aridatum is up in Brighton, Michigan, and they're designing a cell tower that can be placed in remote locations like Australia or Massachusetts. <laughs> we already have the, um, mobile phone towers in Australia. Just oh, you do? We're so lucky. That went away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they work. <laughs> yeah. We're in the same boat, actually. We have one tower, and it actually blew over a couple years ago, so <laughs> we've been living on borrowed time ever since. So they're talking about putting up a 150-foot tower that integrates a vertical axis wind turbine and solar panels and then have a vanadium. Am I pronouncing that correct? Vanadium? Is that the proper 
uh, English, Queen's English Way. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Maybe I'm saying it wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> I put a vanadium flow battery storage to provide power to the system. Uh, and, the, and the point is, is that they don't need any infrastructure. They can basically take a cell phone tower, which is a repeater station, uh, and put it out in the, in the wilderness, set it out there, and uh, periodically check on it. And it, it sounds like they're also talking about putting some sort of uh, diesel generator or something there because you, because of emergency services, it really can't go down. So they need that thing to stay up. And if they had a, I don't know, <laughs> a solar eclipse combined with uh, no wind for a couple of days, they may be in trouble. But uh, so they actually have raised money, $15 million, $15 million U.S., and are planning a, a, a pilot project in Michigan. Kansas and Maine. I wish they'd come to Massachusetts, actually, for these towers. And Rosemary, does this sort of make sense that it, as the batteries get good enough uh, and, and the wind power is working and solar is so efficient, does, does these projects become possible? Well, yeah, but they've been possible for ages. Um, in Australia, so? we have we have plenty of plenty of mobile phone towers or you know communication towers that are not grid connected. Um, and there's a Australian flow battery company called Redflow. They don't use, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're using a different chemistry. It's a zinc bromine flow battery, but they've got at least like many years of of operation um, using solar panels and these flow batteries to you know keep reliable power supply to these remote areas. Um, so I'm not sure exactly wow. where it differs, and I, I haven't looked in, in depth to this new project, but for sure it's, um, it's all mature technologies. The flow batteries have a lot longer duration than, you know, it would be really hard to achieve. With a, a lithium-ion battery, you'd need a big one um, to, you know, get you sure. through, um, yeah, like a really cloudy <laughs> few weeks or, or something like that. And I know that you expect me to say that the vertical axis wind turbine is a stupid idea, but here is the exact perfect place Come for on. it. Come um, on. Yeah, you, all, you already see them powering, you know, meteorological stations and all sorts of applications yes. where you need um, simplicity, reliability, robustness. Those are the important things and not efficiency. Um, so, yeah, you would definitely choose the simplest kind of wind turbine that you could, and that would be, um, yeah, a really basic vertical axis wind turbine. So I think it all, it all makes sense, um, and there's nothing stopping them from doing it. It's just, you know, integrating a few existing very mature technologies, and off you go. So there you go, everybody. Rosemary has stamped her approval on vertical axis wind turbines. I didn't think that was ever going to happen. <laughs> you heard it here no, today. I always, always say so that's it, gonna you know, do it's horses, oh, horses for courses. That, you know, vertical axis wind turbines have their place, and this is their place. There aren't many other places for them other than, you know, this, this type of application. So that's exactly what they're suited to. There you go. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, try joining us on Spotify and other audio platforms. If you're listening to us on Spotify, join us on YouTube also. So we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Podcast. <laughs>